Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have a great guest, Daniel Grauer. He's a writer, teacher, and speaker. Uh, he recently has a book out on um, what is it? Psycho- psychedelic plants and consciousness. Yeah, it's called uh, Psychedelic Consciousness, Plant Intelligence for Healing Ourselves and Our Fragmented World. Awesome. And, uh, and you also kind of live off the grid, don't you, in the Catskill Mountains of New York? Yeah, I live, uh, live kind of in the foothills of the Catskills. It's in a town called Accord. And I recently moved here or to the area around January, and I moved to the current spot that I'm at in April. And so we're a homesteading community. We grow a ton of our a ton of our own food. We have an herb farm. We got a hemp farm. We got we got 18 chickens, and you know we try and uh, preserve as much of our you know as much of our food as possible. Save it. Um, make all sorts of you know build a lot of our buildings, uh, all that kind of stuff. And that really grew. Actually, if I'm if I'm to be honest, that that this this whole experience that I'm living right now actually is a long scale integration from uh, from a psychedelic experience that I had many or not many years about about two years back um, and it was a time period in my life where I had a lot of a lot of different things going on I was at the time uh, running a business importing beer and wine while I was kind of finishing up the finishing touches of my book. It was right around the time when uh, the International Panel of Climate Change had announced that it's not two degrees uh, above, uh, two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That was kind of the the point of no return for us ecologically, but it was actually 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so I was thinking about a lot of this stuff and, um, you know, I started thinking about what kind of, what kind of impact was I having, you know, as a result of my of my business sending beer and wine uh, all around the world. And there was kind of a dissonance with, with what I was writing about in this book, which is very much how do we unify with the world? How do we help heal the world? How do we revere it and help protect it? So I sat, I sat with this dissonance for a bit and kind of did some, did some soul searching. And I ended up proposing, you know, this, this question to, to the mushrooms actually as strange as it might sound for, for some listeners. And you know, I said, how could I, how could I really be more of service to this world and service to the ecological crisis? And, and, and what does that look like? And so the experience in itself, I had beautiful visions of, of earth and human harmony. And I saw myself living on a big piece of land, uh, more in harmony with the earth. And I won't go into too many more details of the trip, but when I came out of it, I said, you know, what, is this, what does this actually look like now to, to bring this into my life? And I didn't know how to live in such harmony. And so recently, uh, starting in March of last year, I took a trip and I visited uh, eco-villages and intentional communities around Asia, Europe, and the States. And after seeing such great examples of what alternative societies could look like who are trying to live more in harmony with the earth, I came back to my home state of New York and started poking around and 
eventually found the place that I'm living at right now. And that's a very, very long story kind of to, to answer that question. But I have to say it's a really beautiful and incredible, incredible feeling to feel as if I'm starting to align uh, more of my actions with my values in a really comprehensive way. And so I ended up moving, moving forward from that business that I was talking about. And now I'm just focused on, on writing and teaching and again, attempting to live, live more in harmony. And it's been incredibly, incredibly, incredibly fulfilling. So thank you for, for asking about that. Well, was it difficult for you to give up the business and go live in the society that you're currently living in? Uh, no. <laughs> well, uh, the, 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 the decision itself was, was difficult because there's, there's, of course, there's a lot involved. I had uh, a really incredible partner that I was working with. I had a lot of brands that I loved working with, uh, a lifestyle that I really enjoyed while I was living in Brooklyn. Um, so those things are, you know, they feel like tangible material things that were, were difficult to make the decision. But once once this feeling was inside me in such a strong way, uh, there was almost no turning back. And once, once I started traveling around and I saw uh, the difference in lifestyle and the, the, the beauty and the simplicity and, and, again, the fulfillment and the satisfaction of growing your own food and eating your own food and um, living, living more amongst nature, the, the decision was was night and day, at least, at least for me. Um, and I, I respect everyone's, everyone's decisions to, to live how, how, they, how they feel is best and whatever their values are, to live in accordance with their values. But once, once this, this arose within me, the sense that I needed to more, be more of service to the ecological um, situation, uh, again, it was almost, it was, it was a no-brainer and, and, it, and it got to the point where it was, it was almost inevitable. And once, once the switch was made, at least for me personally, again, it was, it was incredibly fulfilling and I find myself constantly in, in an immense amount, uh, feeling an immense amount of joy and an immense amount of gratitude and uh, just deep, deep satisfaction um, and, can, you know, just wanting to, uh, to give more of myself to, to this world and try and figure out how we can solve the incredibly complex, incredibly destructive um, uh, situation and systems that we that we currently have in place right now. So I think that's really really what it evoked for me. But the decision was was quite clear and, and even more so after. Well, it sounds like the decision that you made is just in complete alignment with the purpose of your life, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I, I think that happens to too many people. I think most of us spend our lives sort of conflicted between what we're living in what we feel like we should be living. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And, you know, that's, that's something that I sat with for, for quite, quite some time when I had these thoughts about the business. And it took, it took a little bit of a nudge to really, to really get past that point. Um, and, and again, I can really, you know, thank that, thank that mushroom experience, which is the one of, of, of many that I feel like has kind of helped guide me um, on a path towards, towards increasing purpose. And, you know, at some point I thought, I thought beer was my purpose. It was something I was very passionate about. And at one point it was, uh, but this definitely feels um, certainly more, more in line uh, with that purpose. And I think it's, I think it's a capacity that we all naturally have within us, of course. And I think the more 
we're really listening to uh, the depths of our feelings, the depth of friction that we feel, the depth of uh, dissonance that we feel, um, it can lead us towards an increasing sense of purpose, an increasing sense of meaning. And particularly as we, as we look out to the world right now, um, there's, so much, there's so much that's off. There's so much dissonance out there. I mean, we've really kind of broke away from, from the natural world and we're really, um, you know, destroying and exploiting uh, living systems. We're polluting, you know, uh, our, our water, our food, our air. Uh, we're, we're, cutting down, we're cutting down forests. I mean, it's, it's um, and you know, that, that list goes on and on. We're, we're, we're depleting our soil. It's, it's kind of, when, when you start feeling it on this, on this collective level, um, there's so much happening that feels off. And then on top of that, when you bring that down to a personal level and you start really thinking about how your, your actions are perpetuating in a way this, this burning, this, this dying, this uh, destructive world where, where, you know, where so many species are going extinct per day and, and ecosystems are just collapsing, um, I think we're all going to have some dissonance right now. And I think it's important to think about what, what does purpose mean? And what does, what does each of our individual lives hold in terms of, in terms of value for, for ourselves and for the people around us and for the world around us? And I think when you, when you start looking at it from, from that perspective, um, I think a lot of us are going to feel that dissonance and that we're, we're out of line. And, and that's a good thing. Um, it's, it's a bit to, to struggle with and it's, and it's alarming and it provides a little bit of grief. But I think if we could all uh, attempt to, to look at that, it might instigate some, some action on all of our parts. And I think if we could all move forth, and maybe, maybe it's not as radical as, as uh, completely changing your, your career or, or you know, moving to a homesteading community or, or whatever, whatever it took the to form in my life. But I think that everyone or I hope everyone uh, has a pal palpable sense, again, of this offness and this dissonance. And I think if we can all move forward to remedy that in the tiniest of little actions every day, there's, there's trillions of them. And if we can look at our values and what does that mean? And again, if we can align our actions with those values, um, I, have, I have a bit of hope that we can, that we can start moving this, our whole... Uh, again, really, really difficult and challenging situation into, into a better, a better direction. Uh, cause, cause where we're headed is at the current pace is, is certainly quite dangerous and, and destructive and quite, quite scary. Right. I mean, definitely. I, I, I agree. I think most of us are living shitty little lives as uh, slaves to the man, basically making money and consuming and most of us are not even aware of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of tough. Um, you know, it's like I was saying before, I think, you know, people find uh, comfort and, and value in, in their current, uh, current trajectories and, and whatever form that could take. And I don't think that's necessarily um, – quite so much a bad thing as much as it's again leading us towards this uh this larger scale crisis so i think it's just like right. a, well, uh, well i think what i'm pointing at is though it 
people are unhappy and they don't know they're unhappy and they don't know why they're unhappy. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And so when you look at, when you look at our goals as a society right now, you know, the top goals are, are incre- increasing GDP and, and defense, I'd say on a larger scale. When you look at individual goals after you kind of have a house and, you know, some, some stability, you're looking at, you know, the increasing, you know, accumulation of wealth and uh, continuing kind of to increase your, your comfort and uh, security and continuing to consume and, you know, kind of flowing in that perpetual system. But when we're constantly trying to move towards unlimited economic growth and we're just going for this, you know, unlimited uh, achieving of, of wealth in at least the modern sense of it, which I, which I think I disagree with a little bit in terms of the definition of wealth, um, and we're trying to constantly control our environment, um, we're never really going to have a chance to work our way into, into happiness, into meaning, into community. And yeah, so I think, I think you're absolutely right where um, that might lead to a situation where we're continually chasing uh, the, next, the next goal, whatever it is, more consumer items, more material wealth, more more, 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 and it kind of compounds and compounds, and you're always kind of, dang, you know, chasing that carrot without feeling um, the ultimate satisfaction that I think is is absolutely possible in life. Um, however, I do think um, maybe a few years ago on on the large scale collective that was the regular the regular mindset, and I do think with the current the current, you know, multitude of crisis that we're experiencing right now, you know, whether it's the uh, environmental crisis, whether it's the, uh, whether it's uh, COVID and the pandemic we're facing, the systemic racism that we're, that we're all um, finally realizing and attempting to, to grapple with, uh, all of these things have, have created a, a kind of a piercing in the illusion of normalcy or in the status quo. So, you know, we're in this, we're in this time period where, where finally we can step back a little bit and we can reimagine um, what it is that we're, what, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, what is it, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a part of a, a collective society? What does it mean to be a part of a part of a interconnected uh, earth? Um, you know, these are all really profound questions. And of course, individually, what is, what is, what is our place here? And what are, what is our, what is our career path and what is it doing? And so, um, I do, I do think there's a lot of, a lot more thought and a lot more feeling going into the exact thing that you're talking about, that little level of dissatisfaction of, uh, maybe we were kind of just, uh, blindly going into a certain direction because it felt, uh, comfortable and there was a safety to it. And now maybe, Maybe I'm going to think about that a little bit differently. Um, so I, think that, I think it's because yeah. people, as long as they follow this certain path, all their needs are being met. You know, they have food, they have shelter, you know, and stuff like that. And, they're not, and it's not being challenged. However, once it's challenged, then people will be forced to rethink it. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I'm of the I'm of the mindset we're kind of we're kind of approaching a crossroads right here, right? Uh, the future that we're moving towards is 
filled with, you know, rising, rising seawater, uh, climate migration, potential droughts, and increasingly uh, intense uh, storms and fires, potential food shortages. I mean, we don't know how long this is, this is going to take exactly, but it's certainly the direction that we're going towards, right? So the way I look at it, it's either we can, we can look at this and acknowledge the reality of the situation and kind of make a turn uh, from, from, from that place and hopefully actualize and, um, you know, more of our connection as a species, more of what it means to be deeply satisfied as, as a human um, and as a part of this, of this earth uh, before kind of the, the shit hits the fan, if you will. But um, exactly like you're saying, I think it's entirely possible and in fact, probably probable at the rate that we're going uh, that we are going to not, I, I, I hope it's not this way, but we probably won't make the changes until it's directly in front of our faces, uh, until we're experiencing a lot of collapse, until we experience some major droughts and some major resource issues. And then all of a sudden it becomes very palpable. All of a sudden it's not a, uh, some floating conceptual thing that's in the future. It's brought it's brought down to to our reality. However, if we could if we could find a way to as a collective make a shift towards understanding our interrelation to each other and to the world around us, and have compassion for not only ourselves but for the future generation and and for the earth i think it's entirely possible that we can make these changes beforehand and there are there are there are tools out there there are processes out there that i think can can help us do so uh psychedelics being one of them which we can get into a, in a you know perhaps in a little bit um but yeah i think it's important to note that it is it is possible and we can do it and the other side of that is deeply satisfying, like I'm talking about. It's deeply fulfilling. Um, so, so you think humanity could reach a point by using the psychedelics rather than just mass destruction and chaos? Yeah, uh, I do. I think... Um, I like thinking about it as a crossroads and I like Rick Doblin in, uh, in his Ted talk speak called it uh, catastrophe or consciousness. Um, and I really like the look at the kind of the, the perspective of that and the concise nature of that, if you will. And I do think there is um, a very tangible shift that's happening. I do think there is a larger scale awakening that's happening and there's multiple tools that I think could bring about this state of consciousness. And, you know, you can, you can look at meditation, uh, you can look at yoga, you can look at um, drumming, dancing, breathing, praying, uh, spending, you know, a ton of time out, out in nature. Um, those are kind of all different, you know, what could be considered sacred tools or technologies and, Absolutely, you know, I want to talk about psychedelics in this regard. And I think the key to this, this consciousness that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm referring to and the nature of what all of these different practices can do is they, could, they can bring us further into ourselves. They can increase our capacity to listen. And ultimately, in the deepest sense, they're bringing us to the realization that we are all 
innately connected, not only in a physical sense, but in a transcendent sense, uh, sense as well. You cannot, there is no real separation. There's no real barrier between us and the environment. We're constantly breathing in oxygen from the, you know, from the external world, we're drinking water, all of our food. You know, our only barrier is kind of a thin layer of skin that's interacting, you know, again, with this outside world. And so this is, it seems simple, and it is, you know, when you look at it just like a concept like that, it is simple, but it's really, really revolutionary because I think all of this, this, this dissatisfaction, all of this blind moving uh, towards the destruction of the earth can all be deduced to an increasing uh, level of disconnection that's, that's come about in our collective philosophy, if you will. And this has allowed us to, you know, kind of, you know, without you know, mindlessly destroy the earth and mindlessly continue in our, in our path, you know, career paths, whatever, whatever that may be, um, you know, harm each other, whatever way you can, you can look at it. I think this disconnection is really the, the, the root of it. And so again, if you can engender experiences of unity and the key being experience, because we can all conceptualize that every, you know, we're a part of an interconnected world, but until you've directly experienced it, it's, it's, it's not ex exactly as tangible. And so, again, you look at these, these sacred tools and technologies like yoga and meditation, I think slowly, you know, over time, they're bringing you into this mindset. You're getting kind of below your thoughts. You're getting to, you're listening more. You're having more clarity. You're having more equanimity. You can listen to people around you, the world around you more, and eventually settle into the place to realize that, underneath all of the diversity and all the complexity that's happening, which is beautiful, there is a, there is a state of, of unity. And when you look at the psychedelic experience, it is incredibly efficient at bring, bringing about that complete experiential unity. You know, when you're taking uh, smaller to moderate doses, um, you know, it kind of, it, it, it kind of creeps its way in there and you can, you can just kind of vaguely see the interconnectivity of, of everything. And, you know, hopefully you prepared for it, you're supported in it. Um, you have integration after, which are all kind of factors as, as maybe we'll get into, which can help support a really not only safe experience, but a very valuable experience and increase the possibility of this unified experience. And it's even more important when you break into uh, slightly higher doses when it's possible to experience complete ego dissolution, uh, complete immersion with, with a state of unity with your, with yourself and the world around you. And, you know, what's a true authentic mystical experience. And so, you know, again, that could be really challenging. That could be really scary. And so it's incredibly important to know what you're getting into to be really supported during it. Um, and again, to integrate it afterwards. But if, if we do, if we can bring these these plants and mushrooms um, back into, and, and to be clear, the ones I'm, I'm talking about are, are psilocybin-containing mushrooms, mm -hmm. um, mescaline-containing uh, cacti like peyote and San Pedro, uh, and DMT plant mixtures like ayahuasca. If you could, if we could really bring these back into society, and I say back because we've historically been using these for a long time period. If you bring them back in a safe way, and we could really help cultivate these experiences of unity, it's a massive shift. I mean, it's not just, it's not just this, I, this conceptual idea again. All of a sudden, you have, you have more empathy, you have more compassion, you have more awareness, awareness you're experiencing a greater sense of well-being, you understand you're, you're a part uh, of a whole. 
And all of that drastically shifts your, your actions to be more uh, environmental, to, to care more for others. Um, and, you know, that, the, the summation of that, you know, to try and explain it in a, in a somewhat condensed way that I took, a, you know, pretty much a book to explain, I think it's entirely possible that if we pair those, those experiences, let's say, with something, you know, guiding over time like meditation and yoga, we can make that shift to consciousness. And hopefully it happens before we're in the midst of, of catastrophe. And it's not to say that everyone, I don't believe the psychedelic experience is for everyone. I don't believe in, you know, kind of recruiting people. But in the same way that, you know, when meditation and yoga, when people do those practices, not only benefits them, it benefits the people around them. It's the same exact thing with psychedelics. And so if people would like to do it, let's create a safe space. And I do think over time, that could then uh, kind of percolate into society and shift our, instead of being from so disconnected to right. moving towards more of a unified consciousness. Right. So, so you're talking about something totally different, I guess, than what I was doing when I was younger. Um, like when I was, uh, I guess I was, right after I graduated high school, in fact, it was that night, I think I graduated high school and I went somewhere and, uh, and I bought a whole bunch of angel dust, like <laughs> enough to la- enough to last for three months. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and after that, after I graduated high school, I spent three months smoking dust every single day. Wow. And um, and I'll say, like, I mean, it did have its benefits because I, I struggled through school with dyslexia and learning disability and ADD and and all that kind of stuff. And, and afterwards, you know, I didn't have those issues. Like, it, it rewired my brain. Um, but also, I mean, I think maybe it has some, some negative effects, too, because I would say afterwards, it may have taken me maybe five years to normalize again. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't, personally, I don't have uh, much knowledge or experience with, with Angel Dust excel, uh, itself, but um, I kind of, you know, I, I want to mention my, similarly, my, my high school experiences, and then also kind of go into the, the rewiring um, aspect of, of what you were just talking about as well. Yeah. Uh, so, well, for one, that sounds like, like a fascinating time period, um, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that it helped heal you in a certain sense it seems like um personally i had i had my first uh psilocybin mushroom experience i was 16 years old and similarly i think i went into it pretty recreationally um however i remember walking outside and you know seeing the trees breathing for the first time and feeling deeply connected and i didn't really know what it meant at the time but it was it was fascinating and it was the it was the first kind of realization or confirmation for me that there was something more happening. There's something else going on. There's something bigger going on. And we all suspect that, but in that moment, it confirmed it. And it really took me on uh, a massive journey to, in, into philosophy and spirituality and ecology and certainly continuing to um, pursue the psychedelic path and, and dive deep into any of the research that was happening. Um, and so that was kind of how a recreational experience really trans- transformed my life from a young age. Um, but I'm happy you brought in the, the rewiring bit because um, 
I like talking about these, you know, these plants and mushrooms in a, in a, in a wide scale uh, societal transformational self, uh, sense. But of course, a lot of the, uh, the research that we're experiencing, not, uh, that, we're, that we're seeing come out right now, um, you know, with the help of the media and the help of tons of psychedelic conferences and people have been doing this work for, for many years, um, is showing the incredible health benefits and it's, and it's focused on the, on the rewiring uh, nature, if you will. So it's, you know, they're being used to, to heal PTSD, uh, you know, anxiety uh, in regards to terminal illness, um, depression, and, and addiction are, are the four main categories where you're seeing a lot of the research. There's, there's a lot of other subcategories as well. Um, but a lot of what the, the research is finding is one, you know, these, these medicines, and this, this includes not only the plants and mushrooms, but also MDMA and LSD as well, um, is that they're, they're incredibly more effective than the current medicine and therapies that we have out. Um, I, I'm not going to nail this exact number, but I think maybe 10 to 20% of the time for PTSD and depression, uh, the, current, the current methods are working. And here they're seeing, you know, 90, 90% efficacy in, in being able to treat, treat these uh, really difficult, um, you know, mental processes to be, to be dealing with. Right. It's because the fix, I think, is permanent. You, you, you go on a certain regimen of a, of a psychedelic for a while, and then you don't need it anymore because you're okay. Where yeah. the drug yeah. companies are able to make more money by pushing antidepressants that people have to take every day for the rest of their lives. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. Sometimes one, two, you know, three treatments over three, six month, you know, year time periods and people are completely healed. And so, you know, there's, there's a bunch in there. One where we're talking about um, getting to the root of a problem rather than just trying to subdue the symptom. Uh, that's definitely an important thing to mention. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research into, into how that happens. And so what they're finding is, um, you know, there's a decrease of, of activity in what's been called the default mode network of our brain, which is the seat of our ego and kind of the brain hierarchy. And, um, and what's happening is, is when that kind of gets lowered, you know, we experience this ego dissolution experience. And, um, and what's happening is when this default mode network may have been kind of controlling the connections that were happening in our brain, all of a sudden when that gets subdued, there's, there's an increasing amount of connection in the brain. And so let's say you're, you're stuck in a thought pattern um, of, of a recurring memory of, of PTSD or, uh, or something that's depressing you and you just keep on going back and back and back into that thought all of a sudden this increased amount of connection between networks of the brain that wouldn't have normally been connected is allowing you to, in essence, break free and create new neural pathways or create new, new thought processes. And in the experience itself, you might be addressing that exact moment where, um, where whatever the foundation of the depression or PTSD and, and seeing it and accepting it. And there's this interesting factor of this inner healer coming about and helping to heal exactly what needs to be healed. And so if you have that experience, then yes, it can, it can absolutely be for, for a lifetime. You're suddenly, you're suddenly healed of it. And what I found, what I find incredibly fascinating is um, the greatest healing directly correlates with a mystical experience. So it's this, 
it's this core of this unity experience that creates the largest amount of healing. And I think it's a really, really important factor to talk about and a lot of stuff that I go into on why this could be so incredibly important for, for when you talk when you talk about the disillusionment of, of self, you, I mean you're you're basically talking or of disillusionment of ego, you're basically talking about like the non existence of the self, correct? Yeah, well it's it's interesting because there's a lot of layers there. Um, it could just be um, a dissolution of, of your your identity as you know it. And then you could kind of be backtracking, if you will, to a more expansive self that is witnessing that more identity-oriented ego self, if you will. Uh, you know, your sense of self could could also expand to, to nature, right? Um, or, you know, in, in a really profound situation, um, you know, for example, uh, an ayahuasca experience that I had, you know, that, that identity, that sense of self could be completely dissolved until you're existing in a place where you're, you're, you're well beyond your name, you're well beyond the conception of self, you're well beyond the conception of time, and you're existing uh, in, in, in being nothingness, you almost become everythingness. You, you, you merge into the complete infinite oneness, if you will, which is, which is kind of hard to explain sometimes. Right. It uh, sounds like a, uh, an Alan Watts or Ram Das type of uh, concept. Correct. And this, you know, these, are, these are the exact experiences that these guys had and then were able to uh, not only articulate them, but also bring in a ton of Eastern philosophy and religion to explain the context of them, which is, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, I think the, the nature of, of, of what we're, what we're talking about here, but yeah, that is, um, uh, that's, that's a really intense feeling. Um, and, and why I always talk about it, it's really important to feel supported in that, you know, one, to be able to ease into it and to flow into it if it comes about rather than fighting it and to two, just to feel, to feel very safe. Um, but that, that kind of realization, I mean, yeah, these, these, uh, you know, you look at Buddhism and, and Hinduism, I mean, and uh, Taoism, I mean, these, these, these religions have been talking about that experience and getting to that experience and cultivating that reality and that realization uh, for, for, for thousands of years. Um, and there's, there's a reason for it. Absolutely. And, and, and even um, in uh, like South America, in, in North America, in the tribal um, cultures they they also you know through shamanism and stuff and, and even through the use of psychedelics i mean a lot of that has originated i think on this continent right like the use of mushrooms and peyote yeah i mean we've been i think when you really look back on the history of psychoactive plants it actually becomes hard to find a time period when we weren't using psychoactive plants in some sort of a uh, you know, spiritual, revelatory, healing uh, way. You know, you can look at, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries in Greek culture. Um, you can look back to ancient Egyptian texts and there are sacred plants and mushrooms, you know, all over the, all over the place. Of course, uh, Soma in India. And yeah, and you go, you go even further back and continually, I mean, uh, shamanism is, is ubiquitous across, uh, every continent on the world and has been developing for, you know, for 10s, 20, 30, 
40, 50, I mean, we don't even know how, how long it goes back. When you look at, you know, cave drawings, maybe it's 20 or, 20 or 30,000 years, but I'm, I'm you know, kind of in line with Terrence McKenna's stone date theory. And I think we've been continually co-evolving um, with, these, with these plants and with these mushrooms that are, that are psychoactive. I think it's, it's innately been a part of the, the human experience for, uh, for the majority of time up until maybe like the 1600s when the Spanish Inquisition went down to South America and, you know, kind of deemed the first uh, drug laws there when they made peyote illegal in 1620. And really up into our modern times, I think this is uh, perhaps some other European civilizations and things, things of that nature. I think this is the exception rather than the norm. And absolutely, indigenous cultures are uh, the, the, the pioneers of this wisdom. And I think now in, you know, in the, current, the current time period where we've been helping to cultivate the right uh, container and the right rituals and the right guidelines, uh, come uh, from all of those indigenous cultures, uh, yeah, in South America, in North America. But again, this is also happening all all around the world. We've been doing this for a long time, and I think actually the absence of working with psychoactive substances and the absence of experiencing states of unity with nature is I think is probably what got us into this problem. I think it allowed us to, to move forth with the industrial revolution, uh, you know, moving our way into, into, you know, World War I and World War II. And now as we're experiencing the, um, you know, the complete ecological breakdown of our earth and uh, almost the sixth extinction at, at the result of, of all of our hands and all of our, all of our ignorance, if you will, um, I, I really believe this is, this is a result of not having that connection. And I also believe, and I think there's evidence and research out there to support that the insane amount of the, the, the spreading of ayahuasca throughout the world, the mass amount of uh, people that are suddenly interested in psychedelics and this, this huge renaissance, um, I think it's, it's, it's largely, it's a earth, uh, autoimmune response to to bring us back into harmony, um, and this is going to go into kind of a, a bit of an interesting area here. But if you if you look at at humans, if you look at all living organisms as cells within the greater Earth body or the Earth organism, um, this this starts to have a bit more credence. You know, similarly, if you look at our body, which is composed of cells. Um, when cells deviate, when they break out of their connection from, from their role in our body, we have immense, that's sickness, right? Right. And when, um, to be back in healing is to bring those cells back into harmony. Um, and so there's, when it goes out, there's an automatic immune response. And I think what's happening right now is psychedelics and natural psychedelics are in, in, in essence, a feedback mechanism or an autoimmune response for the overall earth body um, to bring us back into harmony as cells of that whole. Uh, but that brings us into another topic of kind of Gaian complexity theory, if you'd like to dive into there. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it is interesting. So, so you think like the earth is like, maybe we share like a consciousness with the planet and the planet is saying like, hey, you got to reconnect with me in order to fix this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we all, 
it's interesting when you look at, you know, Gaia theory and complexity theory, which, you know, kind of break down the earth is one living, breathing organism that's moving towards increasing complexity to increase its adaptability and survivability. I mean, you can't really separate us from, from, from the earth's consciousness. We are the earth's consciousness. Um, and we're kind of the emanation or the continuation of that. You know, you can't, like I said, we're all, we're composed of it. Um, and so either way, every, kind of living organism has has a role to play. We each fulfill our own survival and our own function, but we're also working on the survival and adaptability of the whole. So we do this through a series of information and innovation, which kind of works in a concentric way. And so if you look at everything in the way of kind of receptors and neurons and neural networks, this, this, this it becomes really palpable so or tangible. Um, so if you look at like, you know, our cells kind of being the receptors or neurons, we're then taking in information about the world around us. And we're through our central nervous systems in our brain, we're then processing what to do with that information, making decisions about that information, and then adapting in our world accordingly. So this happens all throughout nature in every micro, microcosm and every bacterial and, and virus community, this is what's happening, but it always flows the information flows into the next larger thing. So if you look at an ecosystem where you have uh, different trees, where you have different mushrooms, where you have different animals, um, they're all taking in information and the ecosystem as a whole then also wants to survive as a collective entity. And so there's all sorts of nuances happening in there where mushrooms are sending information and medicine and water to certain trees that are in need. There's a larger scale functioning and each part of that ecosystem also wants the survival of the whole in the same way that our cells wants the survival of the body. And so then ecosystems are then feeding information to the larger earth organism or the earth whole. And again, this is leading to responses and adaptations with everything, like you said, is working simultaneously together because when we do so, we're adapting, we're thriving, we're surviving, we're becoming more complex. And this is, this is how the whole thing works. This is how we continue to live and continue to survive together. So yes, the more we, the more we tap into that, that uh, earth, earth consciousness, the more harmonious, you know, kind of each layer of these concentric complexities become. Um, and it brings up an interesting kind of question about how that happens if you're willing to go into there as well. Absolutely. One of the things I just, I'm curious about, you know, one of the things that makes humans different than, than other animals is sort of like our, our self-awareness. Um, and it's also one of the things that Darwinism does not really explain. Do you think it's possible that, um, like, say, like Neanderthals or primitive humans started taking these psychedelics, which brought them into some type of self-awareness? Yeah, I think it's incredibly possible. And that's the, uh, the stoned ape theory that, that Terrence McKenna put out was that we, you know, we were essentially, we were, we were apes living in the canopies of, of Africa and ran out of food. And at some point we started, you know, there were these, uh, uh, these you know, cow-like animals at the time, that, not exactly cows, that were, that were you know, pooping in the, in the fields. And we started going out and foraging on the ground. And all of a sudden we stumbled upon 
psychoactive mushrooms in the, in the process of foraging. And we ate them in smaller doses, you know, it increased our, our visual acuity, which, you know, allowed us to hunt more, it increased arousal, which allowed us to, you know, reproduce more. And yes, it, it led to this, this self-awareness and this increased consciousness and this creation of language. Um, and the time period that he talks about, there is a currently unexplained massive increase in uh, the brain capacity, um, I think in the neocortex of, of um, you know, what, what, of Homo sapiens. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's entirely possible. I think it's entirely probable after having this, having these experiences to say, whoa, yeah, all of a sudden you do become more, more self-aware um, and, and certainly, certainly more conscious and environmentally aware. Um, but it's an interesting point about that, that you were, that you were talking about in terms of, of uh, humans being more self-aware than animals. Um, I don't know if that's, if it's necessarily the case or not. Um, that's, that's kind of the, the perspective that we've led ourselves to believe as humans in our yeah. kind of anthropocentric, you know, percentric, um, you know, mindset that we're, you know, we're the, you know, we're the, we're the special ones, if you will. But I think when you look at nature, like I said, everything is taking information. Everything is making decisions off that information. And that is the definition of intelligence, more or less. So, you know, yeah, there's a difference between intelligence and awareness. Um, yeah. Like but, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe like I should have said, maybe like the most self-aware and most capable of expressing self-awareness. Yes. Be- yes. Because, because yeah, I like, I know like, 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 like Octopi make tools and are able to obviously self-identify in some way. And so are dolphins and certain whales. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I do, I do think we're a particular thinking species and a particular creative species. And, um, I think, I think one can argue that we're like the, the thinking, the thinking part of the earth itself, um, or even the universe itself, which I think is a, is a really interesting, uh, thought to consider. Um, but yeah, talking, talking about octopuses and, and segueing kind of back into the nature of, uh, psychedelics create, create the, this this level of cooperation. Someone did a research experiment giving um, octopuses or octopi. I can't remember. Um, I think octopuses MDMA, and apparently they're normally very solitary creatures. And when they were given MDMA, they uh, started socializing a lot, cooperating, almost like hugging each other. Um, so I think <laughs> I think there's there's something to be said about one, our, our relationship to them. Um, and also the nature of, of, of what, what we've been talking about here and the ability of these plants and mushrooms to, to lead to increasing, uh, cooperation, which is just for me, just, just fascinating. And again, this isn't what I find really, really incredible is, is it's not just us who work with these psychoactive substances. This is happening all throughout nature. There's a psychoactive substance in every single ecosystem that is in effect a innovation on the serotonin molecule that not only helps provide certain experiences to humans, but also uh, I think some research is pointing out provides it to various other organisms within ecosystems. It's kind of the, the cooperation uh, molecule, if you will. Do you think the psychoactive plants themselves have their own consciousness 
in our own agenda? I love that question. Um, I, I, I do. Um, and I say it that way with a lot of confidence because these plants and mushrooms have been around for like hundreds of millions of years. Uh, they've had, they've had time here. They've seen tons of, of changes and, um, there is, there's almost a, like a, in my mind, like a guru teaching nature to them that is incredibly altruistic. And I think they just have, I think their agenda is again, for everything to cooperate and for everything to harmonize, which not only it helps everything. And I think they've been here long enough to kind of get past their own uh, individual identities, which I think we're in the process of, of doing right now. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's an earth, earth agenda as a whole and this kind of feedback mechanism and automatic, you know, immune response thing that we're looking at. And I think it's, I do think it's the, the plants and mushrooms themselves that also want to bring us back into harmony. And you enter into those experiences, and yes, sometimes it's challenging and sometimes it's difficult, but they're called plant teachers for, for, for a reason, because we're receiving these, these incredible revelations where we're tapping into this ability to listen and increase our meaning and our, our perception of and understanding of the world. Um, and it does feel like that, that they have our, our best interest in mind, not only personally to help us on our own paths, but also to help us uh, have these realizations to, to work on the collective level as well. So I do think there's a consciousness there. I do think that they are uh, beings or entities in, in, in their own selves and their own right. And of course we know this, they are living beings. Everything is living and we forget this a lot. And, and the way our society is run, we look at the world as an organic machine and it's just resources and it's just land but that it couldn't be farther from the truth. These are living beings that we are sharing this, this incredible, um, you know, beautiful regenerative, regenerative place with. Um, and I think that's, that's the message and that's the agenda. And the question is, how do we, how do they do that is, is, you know, a question that a lot of scientifically minded mm -hmm. folks are going to talk about. Uh, what makes me think about this is the, uh, the book secret life of plants. Ah, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't read it uh, yet. Can you tell me, tell me about it a little bit? I actually haven't read the whole thing either. I know the premise of it is that 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 plants have an ability to communicate with each other and form an agenda, basically. Yeah, yeah, you see that, you see that all over the place. I think it was, I think it was Paul Stamets who discovered the like mass mycelial network that is found all throughout the earth, and so. Um, you know, things are communicating and sending information and water and medicine through that. And on top of that, everything is biochemically communicating. They're sending chemicals out to each other. There's, there's uh, electromagnetic vibrations happening. There's sense. There's, of course, there's sounds out there. Everything is in constant communication. Everything is flowing information out to each other to help the collective survive. Yeah, when you look at something like uh, an invasive beetle, that is that is coming and, and taking out certain trees they will you know the early trees will convey that information to the later trees to let them know that they're coming and in some in some cases they'll even sacrifice their lives to try and prevent the um you know the spread of that disease to the collective uh and so i think yeah when you look at nature there is there's incredible altruism 
I, I don't think there's as much individualism, but I do think there's incredible awareness. Um, and we are in, we're in this world too. We're not separate from it. And there's tons of, of sensory data coming at us at, at, at any given time. And, you know, our, our central nervous system, our brain helps us focus on, okay, we're having this conversation right now. So maybe I'm not paying attention to the bird chirping outside or, or, you know, um, some leaves that I, that I now see, you know, kind of rattling in the, in the wind, we're, we're focused here. But what's interesting is we do have a capacity to take in, to take in more information, uh, to not have it filtered. And what's interesting is during the psychedelic experience, which again, these natural psychedelics are innovations in the serotonin molecule. They're activating our 5-H2A receptors, which are very much involved with how we, uh, perceive the world around us, how we interact with the world around us, and what we do with the information that comes in there. And what's happening is, what's, what's being shown is the, in, in research is when these uh, receptors are activated, either through psychedelics or naturally, there's an increased ability to take in more information about our environment, to take in more sensory data. That's why there's such an expansive awareness that people feel in the midst of a psychedelic experience, whether, you know, sonically in terms of music or you know, their, their, their vision or just their awareness of, of uh, you know, the world and other individuals, um, you know, assuming that you don't get completely, un, you know, overwhelmed by it, you, could, you actually can take in, take in more of the sensory data. And so what happens is the more sensory data you can take in, the more you can adapt, the more you can survive. But when you take in so much, you realize that the barrier between self and environment is actually quite thin to non-existent. And it is this which leads to this ego dissolution unifying experience and understanding that we're all part of this complex unified whole. And so what that does is again, it leads to cooperation and it leads to harmony and that's how everything works together. And this is not only happens in humans, but all throughout living organisms, whether it's ecosystems, bacteria, uh, virus, insects, animals, they have similar analogs of these five H five H a receptors and whether it's, you know, it happens naturally, like in the case of locusts when they're solitary and then all of a sudden their 5-A uh, receptors are activated and they come together in a swarm. In a swarm. This is where the activation and the, the cooperation happens. And this is, this is effectively how um, scientifically we can explain how these, these plants and mushrooms and substances um, communicate, not only communicate to us, but that they lead to these uh, these revelations, this, this healing, um, and again, this, this, this harmony. So I, for, for me, once I, that, that was something I discovered through, uh, Stephen Buhner in his, in his book called, uh, Plant Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm. And it totally, completely blew my mind, flipped my, flipped my world around and I saw <laughs> everything in a completely different way. So I just love talking about that and sharing it. That's great. Yeah. Um, so if you were to like roll out a plan, to heal the world through psychedelics, how would you go about it? <laughs> That's an awesome question. Um, well, I think it's actually unfolding as we speak in a lot of different ways. Um, you look at the, like, the MAPS model, MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, you know, their, their thought was to train a ton of uh, therapists for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and so that when you are prescribed uh, these, these medicines, it's done in tandem with a therapist to be able to support you. 
right? So that's, that's, that's one model of healing. And I think that's a really, that's a really safe and incredible way to go about it. And there's tons of investment that's now and tons of commercialization, uh, commercialization that's, that's jumping behind uh, that method, which I think is great. And then uh, there's obviously, there's a lot of decriminalization efforts happening around the country right now. And one of them that I noticed in Oregon, I thought was incredible because it was legalization effectively. Um, however, you need to have a facilitator, a registered facilitator, help uh, support uh, the, the experience in itself. And it doesn't have to be an accredited person. It could just be someone who has experience. And I think how they said, I need to, I'm not exactly accurate. I think it has to have been nominated by their community. So what you have there is a really, in my mind, a really great system because if someone wants to go to a accredited therapist and they have the means and you know the, the finances and the time to be able to do that, that's great and that's and that's awesome. However, if you're in a community and you can't and you can't afford or you don't have the time to be doing um, that kind of therapy, to have someone within your community that you trust, I think it's it's way more decentralized. It's way more compassionate. And it's, and it's actually a bit freer. And the third thing to talk about, um, it, which in my mind actually makes the most sense, is, is complete deregulation of plants and mushrooms, which in my mind, the, the idea that we can make any part of nature illegal is one of the most ridiculous, the craziest, insane, rudest things that's potentially happened in the history of humankind. Um, you, can't, you can't, it's impossible to actually regulate it. And it, it infringes on one of our most basic rights to be able to be interacting with, with nature for whatever means that, that, that we feel is, is, is right, whether that's for food or medicine or healing or spirit, whatever, whatever that may be. So I think in this process of, you know, de again, deregulating um, plants and mushrooms, while some of the synthetic stuff I think could have regulation around them because, you know, they're a little bit more intensive in the production process. Um, but the more we deregulate, you can allow people to grow them. And the more we put information out there about safe and proper use, the better. And this could happen whether through the way of uh, centers being built, which I think is starting to happen. There's some example of this happening in Europe where uh, you can go there to have an experience, but you can also go there to uh, have a class on uh, proper and safe use. You can go there to uh, integrate, integrate a difficult experience. I think the more we bring these, these plants and mushrooms into the light, the more we, uh, the, the, the safer that we make them. So there's, that's kind of the three prongs that I think would be really smart right there. Again, we have the, uh, the psychedelic psychotherapy route. Uh, we have the, the community oriented facilitator route. And then I do think it's, it's, you know, within, within our right and freedom to be able to be interacting with these plants and, and mushrooms, how we see fit. And so, and, and, you know, not that we're going to, that we can just go out and do whatever we want after, you know, obviously the key is being, you know, we're not, we're doing these things and we're not, we're not harming uh, others or anything in the process, but uh, we should be able to have the choice um, to, to use them to heal, to, to bring about spirituality, to bring about revelation and so, you know, it's one thing to say that you should not, you know, consume these, these plants and mushrooms without, um, uh, you know, a therapist, without a guide, which I agree with. 
um, the more prepared, the more supported you are, the more focused you are on integration, you know, integration. If you have a guide, if you have a therapist, you have a really good experience, friend, that is the way we should do it. But it's another thing entirely to say could not. And I think when we say could not, it not only infringes upon our basic rights, but it creates almost this, this false moral superiority that one person knows more than the next when um, reality, you know, again, you can come in really prepared, but the experience is really decentralizing. And I don't care how much experience you have, it's, it's, it's going to be intense and you don't have authority over it. Um, mm-hmm. You have to flow with it and the plans do. So, you know, if we, again, psychedelic psychotherapy, facilitated models, and then just having institutions in place to, to help educate people and provide uh, support in any way possible, I think is probably the, the three ways to really roll it out and for it to be accessible. If you were to do this, would you try to go through government channels or would you try some alternate means to do it, like calling it like a spiritual experience or listing it as like a religion? Yeah, it's a really, it's a good question. I mean, and, and again, this is, this is all stuff that's, that's kind of in the process of happening. So you look at organizations like, uh, like MAPS um, and Johns Hopkins, and they've been putting forth the medicinal path through the government. Um, and they're in phase three trials with uh, MDMA, with the FDA, which if they, if they finish that, it should be approved for as, as, a, med- as a legal medicine. And with mushrooms, we're in phase two trials, and I think there's preparations for, for phase three. So that's, that's happening through the government. Then if you look at, if you look at the spiritual and uh, religious route, there is some precedent and some context for, for going down that avenue. Uh, the UDV um, was an ayahuasca church uh, that... Uh, took their case all the way to the Supreme Court. And they, at the end, just that church, doesn't mean that ayahuasca is legal for everyone, but just that the court could not prove uh, harm done on that church. And what they were doing was technically within the confines of, of legality based off of you know religious freedom. But again, for them, it doesn't necessarily mean for everyone. Uh-huh. And so they set up a program with the government and, and the DEA to be able to legally import uh, ayahuasca into the United States and use it, but only within their church setting. And you see a similar example with the, with the Native American church and their, uh, their ability to be able to, to use peyote. So the grounds have been set and the president's been set, um, but it hasn't yet been applied to wide scale. Uh, if you're taking psychedelics for spiritual means, then, then you're allowed to do so. Personally, I think it is well beyond, uh, you know, our right uh, with, uh, with uh, I think it's First Amendment, um, to, to be using these in a spiritual context. I mean, I'd say the majority of people that you talk to will, who have had, you know, a, a mystical experience under the, under the influence of psychedelics will tell you that it is, uh, you know, and there's research about this that Johns Hopkins did as well, that it's one of the most spiritually meaningful experiences of their entire lives. So, you know, what, is, what does that say? You know, and are people getting that experience when they go to church? Some people are. A lot of people aren't. Um, and so it says, you know, the, the religion that is uh, predominant and cur- a part of the current status quo and car- part of the current paradigm and has the most amount of people, well, that religion's okay. 
But if you're a religion that's doing some, you know, some weird shit that like we don't really know what's happening there and it's like the experience is a bit further out than what we're used to, I don't know about you. You know, so there's a, <laughs> there's a bit of, you know, uh, you know, prejudice going on in, in, the, in, you know, in terms of that, that amendment. And so I think absolutely um, this should be um, medicinally and spiritually allowed. But, um, and I do think, I do think that the, 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 the way to legalize this is the proper path forward. And when you look at it, you know what, like, I think in a, there's a two, 2013 study that came out that 30 million uh, people aged, there's 30, 30 million people in, I believe it was the United States, had used psychedelics at some point in their lives. And I think now with the incredible media acceptance, all the research coming out, all the great documentaries that are coming out, um, you know, the way we're integrating it into society now, I think that number is vastly higher. And in my mind, this, this process is, is, is already underway. There's no, you but know, it has, but it would have to take a long time. I mean, we haven't even legalized weed yet. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, we can't even legalize cannabis in most places besides psychedelics because, because I, I, don't, I don't know why. But I'm, I'm going to throw out like a really weird hypothetical question to you, okay? Yeah. Like, let, let, let's say, and, and I think this is, might be a possibility that could possibly happen, okay? With all the weird stuff that's going on in the United States, okay, let's say Donald Trump loses the election in November. Hope so. Yep. Okay, civil war breaks out. Okay, complete civil unrest for at least the next three months, which leaves a huge vacuum to be filled by, you know, psychedelics and, and spirituality and stuff like that. Would you think the psychedelic movement would try to take advantage of that opportunity to, to, to fill that vacuum, that void? That's a really interesting question. Um, <laughs> I know you were expecting that one. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've thought a lot about November, as I think has uh, a lot of folks have, and, and yeah, like, like we know we know there's going to be three months of anarchy, no matter what. Yeah, things are going to get pretty weird. Um, and it's it's tough because I don't know I, I don't know what the next crisis looks like. I mean, we're experiencing so much crisis right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, in some ways, like like me personally, I, yeah. I I don't vote, and I've always been an anarchist. I'm just an old school punk rock type of person. I don't believe in government. Yeah. I don't believe in 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 law, and I don't believe in. Um, I just don't believe that one man should be able to rule over another period, you know? Yeah. And, um, but like, I know that's never, that's a, an ideal, you know, it would never happen. But I think, I think it's important to put it out there. And, you know, I think, I think I, I agree with you a little bit. And I think, you know, whether it's this current crisis right now, whether we experience, you know, some massive uprising and some challenges after November, which is, Certainly, I don't hope is the case. It's, it's entirely possible because we're experiencing so much polarization and division and so much hate in this time period. But with this, there's, there's so much room for uh, imagination. There's so much room for, for 
thinking about the new about a different about the system in an entirely different way. And, yeah, I, and it's, I like, it's a huge opportunity. Huge opportunity. And and I love the way that you said that. And you know, in the time when we only had monarchies, was you know, did people think that democracy was was possible? No, but someone was sitting there. Actually, not someone. A ton of people was kind of percolating as an idea, and all of a sudden, it it developed. And I think we're in this time period exactly like you're talking about, where I do think we're moving into a less hierarchical, um, you know, more more shared form of society that is more uh, that is more free in 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 nature. Um, and in my mind, after seeing all of these eco villages and intentional communities around the world, um, I think we might move into uh, like a community oriented with, you know, maybe what's been called autonomous geographies where people have the right to do what they want and they respect others and they respect the earth. And maybe we have a lot of collective agreements as a whole, but it's very non-hierarchical and it's grounded in morals and it's grounded in respect and it's grounded in, in, in consciousness. And I think right. if we that, it is absolutely freaking possible. So, and, you, you know, yeah. uh, it makes me think, um, I, I'm a Buddhist. And I went on a Buddhist retreat. And actually, it was like in upstate New York. And, um, and after the retreat, we're sitting around eating. And, and everybody there w- was a hardcore Democrat. And then they looked at me and like, asked me my opinion. I'm like, oh, I'm an anarchist. And, and they always they asked me like the most obvious question. Well, who's going to build the bridges? And I said, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, said, I said, that's easy. It's really easy. You just put together different labor unions that are in charge of certain things. So you have a union of people that are in charge of the roads. You have a union of people that are in charge of medicine. You have a union of people that are in charge of this. And guess what? I make this even better. You don't even have to go to college anymore. You just join the union and you learn your trade. <laughs> Yeah, and, and they all sat there like dumbfounded, <laughs> and, and somebody goes, "Yeah, that's insane. That's the craziest thing I ever heard." And I, and I wasn't aware of this, but there was this lady there from Germany, and this lady from Germany goes, "Oh, well, that's how we do it in Germany." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's you know it's it's exactly like you're saying. I think it's to- totally possible if we imagine it's there. And even in the small community I live in of six people, we're constantly thinking about. How do we move into, how do we become less transactional, non-hierarchical, constantly moving into more of a gifting mindset? And, you know, there, there are things that pop up. And, you know, for, for example, I really enjoy watering all of the gardens and the plants. And at some point, like, I was, I was, I was hoping that other people would want to do it, but, but they didn't want to. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And at first, you know, I'm kind of back in the old way of society. I was like, oh, man you know, why am I taking more responsibility in this? But then I stepped outside of that mindset. I was like, wait a second. I just really enjoy watering the gardens. And someone, <laughs> else, really enjoy, and someone else really enjoys just cooking really big lunches for us. And someone enjoys, you know, uh, or, you know, or wants to offer, you know, making more bread or cleaning this specific area. And it's interesting how once I stepped out of that mindset, again, more into this gifting thing and doing what I enjoy, even with six people, it's fascinating. It all clicks into place. And it's, and it's, and yes, we have, you know, we have meetings every week and we're talking about these things and working through them, which dialogue and being able to, you know, work through conflict and being able to resolve conflict and, you know, express yourself clearly. And, you know, these are all kind of part of the, you know, built into the models that we're talking about. But again, in my small way here in these other communities, it's showing that what you just mentioned 
is a very real possibility. And I do think it's what we're going towards. And um, it's really hard to think outside of the status quo and to think outside of what's happening. But it's exactly that that I think we need to do. And I think that is absolutely part of what the, you know, the psychedelic movement can offer. I think one, it can, right. it can bring about empathy and, and compassion, which in our time periods of so much divides, like that is, and, and so much, you know, the injustice happening and the systemic racism and people being fearful about trying to fix that. Like it's all, it's so intense right now that we need to feel more. We need to listen to each other more. We need to, to have communication more and dialogue. And yes, this is like a shitload of work, but I think, you know, these can help in that. And you asked in, you know, is this a time period for the psychedelic movement to fill the vacuum? You know, I don't know if there's like a, a cohesive, you know, attempt to do that. Um, I think maybe uh, underneath, you know, maybe it's part of the, like I said, the mission of the earth itself and the plant itself, but I don't think it's a, it's a human design thing, but I do think that's already happening. Whereas in this vacuum, I hope it's that kind of psychedelic uh, mentality, that psychedelic consciousness that is what, is what fills it. And they could help us reimagine this this whole freaking situation it's exactly what we need to be doing is constantly waking up and thinking how could we do this differently and it's everything it's like every small action every like every system every economic system every political system like our our living systems like what we view as priorities here are we talking about capital are we talking about supporting life and supporting each other and supporting the next generations and you know it's a classic you know native american indigenous perspective of you know supporting you know thinking about the the seven generations ahead and you know respecting and thanking and and revering the earth and so you know it's my hope yeah that that in all after you know all the crisis and i'm sure the crisis that's going to continue if that mentality and that philosophy and that heart-based perspective and non-hierarchical gifting non-transactional worlds could come about man that would be incredible and it's yeah it's possible i mean i definitely think there's definitely some type of spiritual movement that's happening underneath the surface yes if eventually it's going to rise up break through the crust and things will, will, will heal the way they're supposed to. Um, what was I going to ask? I had another question, and I forgot it. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, to your, I mean, to your, to your point, I mean, I, there, there is something underneath there. There is something moving. And sometimes, you know, like in, like in Buddhism, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, Buddhist experience and – Sometimes it's 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 the suffering that brings about the greatest realization. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Actually, I just remembered. Yeah, right. You know, the reason that one of the things I think that 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 stops our progress, and, and it, it is obvious, it, it's is people are afraid. Mm. Okay, and, and the one thing that I think people are always afraid of. I mean, the call, I think the cause of all human fear and suffering is the fear of death, mm-hmm. and when you have a psychedelic experience and you go outside of yourself and safely return, you're no longer afraid of death or certainly not as much. Absolutely. I think that's a really important, important thing to go into. Cause yes, when you experience the, 
the you know actual death of your your identity um and whether you look at that as a as a transformational death and rebirth but in, in the feeling of itself that um i think is the most experiential uh version of death that we can experience while living and it is a drastic shift um death is a really really powerful tool and uh, you know, it's something that in a lot of uh, Eastern philosophies and religions, there's, there's a focus on uh, meditating on, on your death um, because it brings about so much realization. One, it brings about more present in the moment. When you, when you can identify that you might die at any moment, which is the actual reality that we live in, yeah. you tend to want to do things in the right way. You want to you fix your relationships. You want to... You wanna, do that thing you wanted to do, but more, more so than doing, you want to be the person that you wanted to become. Um, and it's, you know, not so, again, it's not so focused on these acts and, and, and our, our job. It's, it's who are we as a person? And if we were to die tomorrow, would we be comfortable with that? Uh, a lot of times the answer is no, but when you think that way, it creates a lot of action and it puts you on a really beautiful path and it puts you on a really present path. Um, and I think exactly what you're talking about, it totally transforms your fear. Uh, when you view death as a transformation than an ending, which if you look at nature and everything, you cannot find one example of death being an end. Everything no, that no. happens in the Earth system is cycled. We all know energy cannot be created or destroyed, mm. but still we have this, this sensation that- Death is just a bullshit concept. Right, right, and it's and it's and it's a concept, and so yes, when you when you experience death in some sort of way, you go, oh, this is a transformation, beautiful. <laughs> I don't need to like, I don't need to spend my life worrying about that fear, which I do agree with you is the primary fear. And it's not to say we want to die; the opposite, it gives you a greater appreciation for life because you realize in the impermanence how beautiful this experience of living really is, and how you should savor it and really, really take it in. But it doesn't mean you should be fearful and, and, and worry. You should be going forth with, with not, you know, worrying about the, the fruits of your action or not wondering, worrying about when you're going to die or how you're going to die. Right. All that you're worrying about is that you're doing it right. But, but maybe if we, if, if we live our lives preparing for our own deaths, and, and actually, you know, actually definitely the use of psychedelics helps in that process, things would be much different. They'd be, they'd be incredibly different. And there is some incredible research that Stanislav Grof uh, put out. He was one of the early uh, psychedelic psychotherapists and researchers, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he wrote a beautiful book. I think it's called The Ultimate Journey. And so he worked with a lot of, he worked with LSD with a lot of patients who were experiencing anxiety about terminal illness and helped them in the uh, in the dying process in this matter of, of accepting their death and not being so worried about it, being able to live out their final moments uh, in presence and in love with their family. And what he found in, in, in all of his, his research is that uh, the psychedelic experience really correlates with near-death experiences, uh, not only in its, in its contextual experiential nature, but most importantly in the effects afterward. When that near-death experience or when that, you know, uh, death and rebirth type of mystical psychedelic experience happens, there's a drastic shift in uh, how individuals are interacting with the world. Again, there's, there's presence, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a zest for living 
there is a, a, a desire to be focused on more of the art of the world and the music and, and painting and, and increased ability to take in um, uh, more sensory information about their environment and appreciate nature. There's a spirituality of more of a, a global perspective, more of a mystical perspective rather than an isolated religion or an isolated uh, uh, path, if you will. It's more, okay, I might take a perfect, you know, uh, I might take a specific path, but I respect all the paths and the ability to, to get us to exactly where it wants to go. And there's increased well-being and a lack of worry and increased communication in their relationships. And this is reported in the individuals as much as in their friends and in their family. So yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing that you mentioned. What is that, you know, alongside all of the healing, alongside the revelation, alongside this, this, this state of unity that I'm talking about and this creative uh, spark and this uh, revelation that can come about. It's also this, this shift in how we view death and how we view life, which is, so fundamental and so fear-orienting. And as we move into this time period of increased suffering, of increased death as a result of crisis, uh, sorry, uh, death as a result of COVID, as I'm sure we're gonna increase, uh, experience increased death and suffering as we continue down this path of, of collapse, it's really important to be able to face it and to not run away from it like we've done as a society, to not tell people about it, to try and avoid death. Uh, we have all these anti-aging things yeah. out there. People get, people get pissed off me all the time when, about this COVID thing. And, and I say, man, you know, it's just death. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> if it's going to, it's going to happen to you else anyway, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's not that big of, of a deal. I mean, it, we just have to let, nature take its course and, and yeah. people people get so upset with me when i say that <laughs> yeah i mean i can i can see both sides of it i mean one death is death and then two no matter what you know we love we love the people that we love and even if you know that the people you love you're eternally and infinitely connected to and you're doing this dance together at multiple lifetimes and you know you love each other beyond beyond just bodies no matter what, it's still it's still lost and it's still devastating. Yeah, I mean, I understand like grief sucks. You know, like I yeah. lost my parents about five years ago. It took me, yeah. you know, four years to start feeling better. Yeah, but but, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But to your point, the more the more we can step into that, the more we can we can accept the grief in its fullness and hold and hold both of those things side by side. Right, you you know you can you yeah. can grieve while also accepting death simultaneously, um, and while also appreciating the fullness of, of of that life that was and the connection that you have with that life. And and yes, the more the more we accept it, the more the more easier it is. And yes, it's okay and it's natural and it's beautiful and it's likely transforming into something even better and whatever happens next and whatever you, you believe happens next. But yeah. like, like so many people are interested, like everybody, like everybody I know who becomes a nurse, they always want to work like in a maternity ward, you know, me, mm. I would want to work in a death ward. Mm. Cause, cause, cause I find it just as important as being born is dying. If they're not possibly the same thing. Yes. Yeah. They could just be two, two sides. And I think that's probably the case where it's, you know, you're dying and you're being reborn into the next thing, whether you're being reborn into the next life or you're kind of flowing into the great eternal ocean of beingness. 
um, and oneness and, and nirvana, um, you know, whatever that next thing is, it is, yeah, you're dying and then you're, and then you're going to something next. I think that's beautiful. And it's something that, uh, Ram Dass talks about a lot to yeah. you know, being with dying people to really increase your, your presence in this life and to increase your spirituality and your understanding. And yes, they're both, they're both, they're both as natural. Um, and I'm, I'm totally with you there on that. Awesome. Um, I haven't asked you this one. This is an obvious one. I probably would most people, most people probably ask you this at the very beginning of an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, Carlos Castaneda. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, he always is going to come up in this, in his topic. And I've read, I think I've read the first three books um, of it, yep. you know, but there's this whole mystique just surrounding him and not even his books, you know, like, like you know, is what? What is your opinion on Carlos? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I could speak so much for like the mystique around around him uh, specifically, because I'm just not. I don't feel well versed enough to take to take an opinion on that. I do know that his books were one of the first kind of quote unquote psychedelic books that I received at I think it was the end of high school or, or early college. And I was freaking fascinated. And for me now, as as a writer, I wasn't I wouldn't have considered consider myself a writer at that point. But no matter what you think of the guy, what he evokes in those books and that writing brings you to a certain place. And it is pretty similar to where it, the it, it, it evokes something that you experience in the midst of psychedelics, and you're reading it, and you go, "Whoa, that guy's been there." Yeah, uh, and it and it transports you, and so for me, being able to to see someone write about that, to experience that, opened up a complete new dimension, a completely new world of folks trying to articulate what I viewed as ineffable. I didn't know that you can put words to that state of being, to that state of consciousness, and for me, that was really important, really profound, and um, also, you know when I read Terrence McKenna, it brought me into the same category. You can say what you want about Terrence. That guy was freaking brilliant. And to put the words that he put to the experience is mind blowing. You're literally going out there into the ether where words don't exist and you're trying as hard as you can to grapple back something to try and explain to someone the inexplicable. Um, and so, yeah, for me, that was just incredibly inspiring. And I think it's, I think it's what got me into writing about psychedelics in the first place. Cause again, I wasn't a writer. And yeah. then when I sat down to try and explain these experiences, it really it pushed myself to try and really dig into what was happening and explain it. But, you know, Carlos, whatever, whatever is, you know, his life was about and the opinions that folks have on him, I still thank him for his work, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and a good thing too about his books are um, they're readable, you know, like anybody could read it and get something from it. Um, I'm trying to think of this. Um, like I, I had tried reading like uh, like Jack Koryak, yeah, and, and I couldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I couldn't get past the lack of paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get you, I get you. Yeah, but, I mean, but Carlos, I could read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I think a lot of folks a lot of folks feel that way, and it just again it just bears kind of credence to to his if anything his ability as a as an artist. Um, 
to be able to translate that kind of, that kind of experience, that kind of state. And even if, even if part of it's fictional, um, you're still, you're being brought, you're being brought somewhere. Um, and it's, it's powerful. And I think, I think digestible writing is uh, a, a really beautiful thing and it takes a lot of work. Um, it does. So- I, I've written a book also and you know, like, like writing the first drafts was easy. The, the six months of editing <laughs> was uh, difficult. And, and probably, obviously, I think more important than actually writing the book. I, you know what? I completely agree with you. Um, I spent, spent a couple of years or so writing the book. And, you know, I was doing other things. I was importing beer. I didn't, I didn't know I was really writing a book or, you know, whatever for a little. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like, the first part felt super blissful and joyful and just free-flowing and easy. Uh, and then it was, I had, I had about a nine month editing process. Oh, actually it was longer than that. I was doing some editing, but after I finished the final manuscript, I then went back through it again and did about nine months of, of editing. And I think I had, I think the original book was 450 pages in total. And now I, this, this got down to 153 in like a 30 or 40 page appendix. And I don't think that I removed any substantial information and man that was a challenge you know is sit down for six (laughs) hours every day and really really crank through it and it's less it's less joyful but the rewards when you when you really get that perfect sentence or paragraph that that you've been looking for there's there's something there's something powerful and beautiful about that too and i I came to really appreciate it as, as it sounds like you did too uh, towards the end of it, and then obviously when it's done, it's yeah. Like what, what I was doing was I would uh, on my computer. I could make I could write something and then have it read it back to me, you know, like and I could hear it what it sounded like. And, and that was sort of like my my first editing process was doing it that way because I I wanted my book to have like a rhythm to it. Yes. And um and then once I finally finished it, I, I was fortunate enough to have a friend who um, was a um, he is a professor. He graduated as a professor from Columbia University, and, and he did like my final edit for me. Wow! But it, it was such a crazy process. Okay. Um, are, are you going to write another one? Oh, absolutely! I'm like I'm I'm hooked now. I got I'm uh, I'm into a second, actually a second and third book as we speak. But I'll be. I'll be diving more into the second one, you know, more seriously as the fall and winter start. And I have the next third, a fourth and a fifth outline. I just like, I, I totally caught the bug. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to, to do this hopefully for a long time. Cause awesome. as crazy as it is and as challenging as it is, I really, I really enjoy the process. Um, yeah. How about, how about yourself? Um, you know, I mean, it's been about five years since I've written the last one, but now I'm actually, since I started this podcast, it's definitely inspired me to write again. And I actually have three that I'm thinking about writing, all, all sort of related to this podcast. Ah, that's great. So, so, yeah, you, you so, like so you're probably going to see like everything imaginable, volume one, two, and three. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. You know, like I probably won't going to release them like as a one, two, and three because I want to be able to work on each one individually and not necessarily have to work on something in order. Mm. You know, I kind of like would like to be able to jump around from project to project so I don't get bored. Yeah, you gotta go. You gotta go where the energy goes. I remember yeah. uh, one of my one of my favorite books about writing uh, was called Insulting Language by Stephen Buhner. 
And I think he was quoting someone else, but he was talking about pulling on these golden threads of inspiration. And I always, I, I really, you know, amongst the many stuff, uh, you know, that he spoke about in that book, I really resonated with that in the writing process where you don't always know where you're going, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden a book that you're reading, an experience that you had in your life, you're pulling and you're pulling and you're pulling and it's, it's taking you somewhere and it ends up writing itself. And so the reason I say that is, yeah, it never feels good to be stagnant or to feel like you're, you're, you're boxed in in the writing process. It always feels great to be more expansive and open and letting it, letting it take you where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the book that, got me affected me to write um for writing was oddly enough stephen king on writing <laughs> nice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i definitely would recommend that for anybody who plans on writing a book yeah yeah <laughs> that's great and it's actually an entertaining read too yeah same same, same with this book in selling language as well i was like it was actually one of the most I'd say almost spiritual books I've ever read. And it was about writing nonfiction, which I think bears some credence to what he's talking about in terms of working, working with the deep meaning or spirit or dreaming or feeling sense of the world. Right. Yeah. And it's and interesting because like really Stephen fun. King's on writing, he, he dives a lot into his battle with addiction and, and oh. how, you know, it, it helped him create those type of characters, like the obsessive compulsive type of character. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's the best when we're, when we're working with things that we feel incredibly passionate about, whether that's things we love, whether that's things we want to fix or things we want to despise, but things that are intimate to us that it almost, it feels like it has to come out. We, has, we have to say it. And it's, sometimes it's not us. There were a lot of times where I was sitting and writing and I'd come out after six hours and say, who the hell wrote that? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it feels like there are things that, that want to move through us. And yeah, when you're, when you're working with those, those like, struggles, those. Like struggles. taking a dump. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. For me, for me, it, you know, it came about, it was after my, it was after my first ayahuasca experience and I got a really strong call to write in the midst of it. And then I woke up the next day and I was so upset that something that was so spiritually transformational for me could be illegal, that someone else could tell me that I could not do that felt like such an affront to my freedom that I, I, my, my pen just wouldn't stop writing. And that was kind of the origin of it. It went from there. It felt like an injustice in the world that I, that I had to solve. And yeah. maybe, you know, some sort of a dump that I had to take. It was, it was in me. And, I, and it, until, until it was all on the page and out there, it was, non-stop it was like being possessed it was crazy that was great um when you have an ayahuasca experience one of the common things i hear is people encounter uh, a certain type of being and everybody seems to have this being always has this sounds similar from all these different type of people um do you believe when people are on ayahuasca or some of these drugs that they are um communicating with some type of astral being oh absolutely um and it's it's funny it's uh it seems really simple to me i mean this is this is an earth being this is these are plants um and again this is this is our interaction with a with a living being for the first time we're talking about a biochemical communication but it's absolutely a communication um i think a lot of folks uh including my myself report uh a feminine 
uh, motherly, really supportive earth figure, which, you know, sometimes shows us stuff that is really difficult to go through. We have to go through and sometimes it envelops, envelops us in this, in this blanket of, of infinite love. Um, and yeah, it seems people, uh, it's, I, I dare say it's almost ubiquitous. I don't, I don't want to say completely ubiquitous because obviously there's going to be, you know, folks out there who say, I haven't had that experience and it, and it might be yet, but, uh, it might be a matter of letting, you know, like call letting her in or letting yourself actually enter into the experience. But when people do encounter an entity, uh, entity, it seems very common that it's, that it's female and that it's nurturing and that it's, uh, that it's motherly. And again, I, for, for me, I mean, well, it's absolutely fascinating in the midst of the experience itself, but it also, it also makes sense in this really interesting way. And again, we're talking about, this is an earth being, this is a, these are, you know, plants that are being mixed together to bring out uh, this, this being, this essence, this spirit that has been here for hundreds of millions of years. And like I said earlier, everything is communicating. And so it's not, when you think of it from that perspective, it's not that weird or it's not that astounding that finally we have broken to a barrier of being able to connect with another species on this planet. I mean, how lonesome would it be as humans to think that we're completely alone and separate here when there's a great big interactive party going on of all of these, of all these different species. And what's also interesting about it is at least from my experience, it's not, it's not a verbal communication. As humans, we're used to verbal communication, but again, this uh -huh. is biochemical. This is happening in the process of our of our body, of our minds. And so it feels like this this direct uh, soul to soul, mind to mind, body to body, spirit to spirit, whatever whatever terms you want to use. It's it's direct. She is she is with you and and interacting with you, and you don't need to speak. It is direct. You don't even need to you just think it, and it's there, and it's and it's part of it. Um, and yes, it's absolutely, it's fascinating, but for me, it makes, it makes complete sense. Um, and I think when folks are interacting with these plants and mushrooms, they call them plant spirits, plant teachers, uh -huh. uh, plant medicine. It's for a reason. You are, you're absolutely working with a different entity who, in my mind, has our best interest at heart and has the best uh, interest of the earth at heart. They're incredibly altruistic. They're just giving us these teachings uh, for free and they're completely there it's it's immense wisdom uh it's sacred sacred wisdom and it's all for free and or you know it's it's a gift and yeah. the best thing that we could do is we can we can say thank you we can listen and we can become a part of this world again uh and for me that's i i, I can never think about how to you know, repay or properly say thank you to these plants and mushrooms who provided me so much and provided countless millions of individuals so much. Um, so that's my, that's, that's a stance on it. That's pretty cool. I was, um, I said about a couple of weeks ago, I did an interview with, uh, he's actually like a, a ceremonial musician, magician, Lon, Lon Milo Duquette. And he took over Alistair Crowley's organization and um, but one of his main forms of magic is this stuff called Enochian, which was made by John Dean Edward Kelly. And he said the spirits in that system are all earth spirits. They're, they're trees, they're rocks, they're grass, stuff like that. So it, it just kind of jives with like what you're saying through the use of psychedelics. Just it's a different, 
a different approach to communicating with those spirits. Absolutely. And, you know, this is, of course, a very indigenous perspective to, to not only believe, but to know that we live in an animated world. Uh, and I think this is a really interesting topic to dive into in terms of something that could really benefit us as a society, uh, as a society and as a whole to bring back this understanding of nature and of reality that we are not only working in the material realm of matter, but there are many unseen forces out, out in the world. Uh, and everything, yes, everything is animated and everything has a spirit. Um, and so in the case of, yes, in the case of psychedelics, it's a bit more clear because you're working directly, you're communicating directly with that spirit. Yeah. Oftentimes there are a lot of folks who, who report after having that first experience and opening up their, their selves to, again, a much more interrelated, interactive world where there are, of course, many other living beings and many other species in this world, you can begin to tap into those spirits a bit more and you can begin to listen and interact and thank them. And it's pretty, uh, not only mind blowing when you start entering into that sphere because it's pretty, it's magical, but it's, it's experiential. There's a, there's a reciprocity from the world that happens when you start entering into that place of understanding, when you start going hiking and communicating with different mushrooms and plants in certain ways, whether that's just feeling into them, saying thank you, identifying their presence. There's, there's, there's some sort of response. There's a palpable feeling that comes about. This isn't just a blank belief. This isn't just a blank idea. And there's, you feel an essence of support. And of course, when you, if you as an individual are interacting with the world and no one's thanking you and no one's identifying your presence, how much do you want to help another individual? I don't. No, you don't, right? On the contrary, if someone is identifying you, they're identifying your presence, they're thanking you for your presence, they're appreciating your beauty, they're, they're appreciating your existence, you want to hang out with them. You, you want to support them. You want to, you want to talk to them. And I think that's exactly what's happening in the world around us. And the more we tap into that, the more apparent it becomes. It's not this magical thinking world or this, this place of fairy tales and myth that's, you know, relegated to ignorant thinking. This is the nature of the world that we live in and we've disconnected from it for so, for so long. And if you tap into that, again, it's one of those things where it totally changes your, your actions. When you believe everything around you is living, when you're in community with the living world, you don't want to harm it. You want to help it in every way possible. And it wants to help you as you're helping it. And so it creates this synergistic process. And yeah, the more, the more we tap into that, the better. And I do see that happening a lot more uh, in, in conversations and interacting in storytelling that I see in movies, documentaries, all sorts of various art. You know, I think art is a reflection of the, the collective subconscious and it's, it's starting to come about. And the more, the more we do that, the better. So the more we, the more we, the more we understand that, the better and the more in harmony and in line we'll, we'll do things. And, it, and it's hard, you know, it makes you think about every single action that you do on any given day and a lot of them are going to be destructive and a lot of them are going to be hypocritical and that's hard to work with. But as long as you're working with it and really working on it, then I feel as if it's, it's comfortable for yourself and respectful to that animated world. As long as you're moving forth in that direction. Right. Nobody's going to guess, 
become perfect instantaneously. Yes, it's a, it's a collective thing. We live in a system that we've built that's really destructive and it's going to take trillions of small acts on each of us and a, and a large scale morphing of the system over time. And, but yeah, no one it's, you can try, but it's really, it's really hard. Right. Yeah. I mean, how about like people that live in like cities? Like I know you're, you said you were from New York city, um, Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, I grew up, I grew up in Long Island and I spent about, uh, five, five years living in Brooklyn before leaving and moving up here. So yeah. 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 So did you think like city life, um, stifles people's connection to the earth personally um i felt that way but i'm reluctant to speak on other people's experiences and i'm reluctant to um kind of well, shun- just just for you personally yeah yeah i'm reluctant to shun city life, city life but for me personally i you know when i was in there yeah, I didn't feel as much of a connection and it was something I always grappled with. I would spend time, I'd spend a lot, pretty much the end of each day, I would walk through McCarran Park and there were certain plants that I would say hello to and I'd go watch the sunset over New York and I was able to develop it in uh, some sort of a context, but I would call it getting concrete sickness. If I spent too much time in the city and I'd immediately go leave and go and go hiking whenever that, whenever that feeling came about. Um, and there was definitely something inside me that was pushing me out of the city for a long time. And now that I'm living in a natural environment on 60 acres where I'm growing food and herbs and content every single day, I'm waking up and I'm interacting with the natural world. That is it now that, that feeling now feels, feels satiated. Um, and so I can't speak for others, but like I said, for me, for me personally, it was hard to, to fully, fully develop that connection while being there. It's, it's possible and there's, you know, some great environmental benefits of cities and people I think really enjoy the human connection of it. Uh, but I do think the more time people are spending in nature and the more really interacting with it in terms of, in terms of growing their own food and nurturing the earth and thus nurturing themselves and growing together, uh, for me that, that felt very, fundamental to a, a human experience that I was looking for. Yeah. Like I'm also like I'm originally from New Jersey and the part of New Jersey I grew up in when I was a kid, it was very country. And, you know, over the years it just became like urban sprawl. Mm. And, you know, in, in, in New Jersey, just, it just got so polluted and, and crowded and stuff. Like at night you couldn't even see the sky anymore. You know, it's just like in New York, you look up, you don't, you don't really see the sky, <laughs> you know, it's just, right. you know, emptiness. And, um, and then I moved down here to Alabama and as soon as I walk outside and I look up at the sky, I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, I feel more of a spiritual connection just by walking out my door and looking up and being able to see the stars or clouds rather than small. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you there. I mean, being able to look up at a clear night of stars, I think it evokes a a natural state and awe and wonder, which is so healthy for for just just being human and feeling our connection to the world and maybe tapping into the a bit more of an animated world. So I'm completely with you there. It's 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 hard though, you know. It brings up an interesting question. I think I think everyone should be should be growing their own food and their own medicine. And I think as we 
as we move into the next world and as we're dealing with a lot of, like I said, you know, collapse and crisis, those skills are going to become increasing, increasingly important, uh, not only for survival, but for building resilience and uh, adaptability right. uh, on, on personal levels and on community levels as well. And it also brings up a really important topic of, of access. I was watching, listening to a podcast by a woman named Leah Penniman, uh, who runs a um, soul fire farm in upstate New York. And I was blown away that 90, 98% of land ownership in America is, is owned by white folks, um, which is, I, I had no idea it was that drastic. And so as we, as we move into this, into this area and perhaps as people are going to be growing their own food, it's what does that look like? You know, how can we really come together as a society and, you know, offer that up? How could, you know, she was talking about the opportunity, um, you know, for folks to be able to offer land up to, uh, to people of color and people in need if they, if they have it almost in the way of, of, of reparations. And it's, it's almost as we go into this mindset again of non-transactional of, of gifting of you were talking about almost anarchy it's going to be interesting to think about how can we actually share all this land to the point where we're moving towards a place of sustenance to a place of abundance to really feed each other and to really take care of each other and i think it's entirely possible we have enough land to do it and we have the heart to do it and we have the capability to do it and i don't think it should come about by by force or by violence or by this or that i think it should come about by volition and by heart and the more we really um again feel into this and tap into empathy and compassion and realize that so much of the land that we're using right now is just for such useless and destructive and yeah. exploitive means that are just benefiting the the creation of, of a worthless capital that's not based on any sort of biological or life-bearing means you know, this is, this is possible, but it is going to take a, a pretty uh, radical change in, in mindset. But it is. But I think it's starting to happen, though. I think yeah. one of the things, like, with COVID-19, you know, like how it hit New York City, you know, and it just sort of became like a, you know, a, 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 a cesspool for disease, basically. Mm. Uh, you know, like, I know, I mean, I live in, in the middle of nowhere in Alabama. And I would say after COVID-19, I've run into at least five people that moved from New York City to here to get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're experiencing a ton of that also. I live about two hours north of New York City. Uh, I came up here in January, which is obviously right before everything happened. But there's been a huge influx of people moving out of the city. And it's interesting because the urbanization trends were climbing for so long. I think we're probably going to experience a drastic decline, which is nice for the people who are living in cities because they're not so crowded finally. Uh, but for the folks who want to, who do want to experience, do want to be interacting more with nature and growing things. Yeah. That's, I think there's, that's that movement as the, the water level rises and things get flooded because so many of our cities are built next to water. I mean, this, this trend will likely continue. And I think it's a, it's a good trend and you know, it's, it's unfortunate and it's a really challenging and to really a lot of suffering and destructive. Um, but if we, it can move us back to being humans that in a really simple way are, are here for sustenance and revering and respecting the earth and, and growing and being part of it and just caring about life bearing systems, then in the end, I think it'll be, 
I hope it'll at least all of the suffering and the death won't be in vain and it'll be for a positive reason. I think so. Yeah. So I'm going to get ready to wrap this up. Um, any, uh, any message for the world that you'd like to put out there? Any message? You yeah. Know, if there was one thing, one piece of advice that you could give to everybody, what would it be? I would say it's time to start reimagining how we live. It's time to start respecting each other. It's time to start realizing our interrelation between each other and the natural world. And it's time to start thinking how after all this crisis and collapse, how do we prevent continual crisis? And how do we, you know, essentially rebuild the world with an increasing amount of heart, increasing amount of care, increasing amount of respect. And the more we could be working towards that, then working towards the development of capital, um, the more we can be truly diving into our authentic selves, which I think want this world. And by authentic, I mean that we're trying to align all of our actions with our deep-seated values. If we could do that together, and if we can continually to com you know, communicate and work through all of our difficult conflict, and again, continue to reimagine and rethink everything that we're doing, for me, that's the, that's the message to the world. And in a time where we're struggling with hope and grief and suffering and death and systemic racism and collapse, I think that's, that's the hope. And that's what's hopefully going to get us through. Awesome. I totally, I 100% agree with you. Um, and what is the name of your book again? So my listeners can. Uh... Sure. It's a uh, psychedelic consciousness, plant intelligence for healing ourselves and our fragmented world. Awesome. And it's on Amazon, correct? Yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon, it's on uh, IndieBound, it's on Barnes & Noble, it's on my own website on danielbrower.com. Um, and I recently also just entered the, the social media sphere for the first time in like seven years with a, with a name of psychedelic.consciousness. People want to see what's going on there. I'm just getting started on it. So, we'll right. so, so send me to someone to, after the show, just send me an email with those links. That way I can post them in the notes to this episode for my sure. listeners to go to. Cool. Excellent. Awesome. Well, this was a great interview, man. I love talking to you. I had a lot of fun. I did too. Thanks so much for having me on the show, man. It was a pleasure. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle, which I would be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. And oh yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. 
It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.